Time for the Sports Pen on ESPN-UPWZAM. Ishpeming Marquette, what's up everybody? Tanner Hoops in studio with you. Thanks for hanging out with us in your Tuesday afternoon. It's been a long 23 hours. I missed you guys. Hopefully you listened to Westwood Patriot basketball last night. A pretty good game as the Pats win 46-29 at Manistique. Move on to tomorrow night's district semifinal at Nagani. The third meeting of the year between the two squads. Always a good one when those two square off. It should be again tomorrow. We've got plenty to go over in today's show. We're going to update our movie brackets. Again, we're searching for the greatest sports movie of all time. You can vote in our Twitter page at ESPNUP on Twitter. If you don't have a Twitter, make a Twitter so you can go on there and vote. Coming up throughout the next hour, a couple of high-profile sports figures find themselves in hot water after comments made publicly this week. The MHSAA and its postseason basketball tournament, the excitement that comes with it, And the obvious problem that everybody but those in charge seem to want to have fixed. A prominent figure here at ESPN says that we need to change one of the most iconic mascots in sports and what went down in Oxford, Mississippi over the weekend. Especially the back end of this show, folks. Not going to be for the squeamish, so hang in there with me. We're going to start, though, by updating our movie brackets. We started out with four first-round matchups in the football regional yesterday, and here are the results of those polls. Invincible, all over necessary roughness. This poll wasn't even close. Invincible, 89% of the vote, compared to 11 for necessary roughness. This was a close one, and again, these two shouldn't have met in the first round. It was a completely blind draw that they did. Rudy, 52% gets by the blind side, and it's 48%. Varsity Blues took a 62% to 38% victory over Radio. And the longest yard, again, you can vote for whichever one is your favorite. We weren't going to go into semantics. The longest yard took down Friday Night Lights, 57 to 43. So those movies are moving on. Again, you can vote every day from 4 to midnight on our Twitter page at ESPNUP. Voting just open, so you can vote for the bottom half of the football regional first round. Here are the matchups today that you can vote on. We are Marshall or North Dallas 40. Little Giants or Remember the Titans. Draft Day or The Replacements. And Gridiron Gang or Any Given Sunday. To repeat, We are Marshall versus North Dallas 40. Little Giants versus Remember the Titans. Draft Day versus The Replacements. And Gridiron Gang versus any given Sunday. And I want to add one more note to that. It was tough narrowing down this bracket, narrowing down what movies are supposed to be in here, but I think us at ESPN came up with a pretty good list far and wide. But we got a message on Facebook yesterday, and one of our listeners suggested a couple of football movies we didn't feel made the top 16 cut, but I've wrestled with it, and I think we need to give them a chance. We need to add them in there anyway. And we have open slots in the baseball bracket. So we are going to break the rules a little bit. Since the football bracket's already started, we're not going to do play-in games for it. We are doing play-in games for the baseball bracket. And that's going to start later this week. So let's add a couple of football movies that, oh, they're good enough to be top 16. But again, we only had 16 slots. Let's let you vote on them anyway. We are going to add Newt Rockney and Waterboy to the baseball bracket. You can vote on they were left out of the top 16 in football. They're good enough to be top 16. 
But let's add those in there anyway, just for fun. Again, thank you for reaching out on Facebook. Thank you for everybody who's able to connect with us on Facebook. I will say this, though. If you have anything to say regarding the bracket and what have you, we got a lot of messages on Facebook yesterday. Things like, you guys must not like baseball movies, or you're missing Slapshot, Miracle, things like that. But the post said, this is a football regional. So just so we're clear. The rest of the bracket, the other sports, they're coming up later throughout the week. We're just voting on football right now. We're going one at a time. Know what I'm saying? I think this is going to be fun. I think this is going to be really fun to see the matchup, see what our listeners like. We're going to continue to break it down all throughout the week and into next week here on ESPN-UP and throughout the sports pen. Again, voting is open every day from 4 to midnight. So once we hit the air with the sports pen a la just a couple of minutes ago until midnight you can vote for your favorite sports movie with the day's given matchups so that's what we've got to update you on regarding cinema we've got a lot of topics to get over in the next hour but i want to start with the nba mvp race because a few weeks ago you could have asked me who is the nba mvp if the season ended right now and maybe at the midway point Maybe even at the All-Star break, I would have said James Harden. I thought Harden was the clear-cut favorite. And now I'm really not sure. I don't think a lot of you are sure either. Yeah, there's some of you wearing your Bucks gear that are pretty sure Giannis is the MVP. But are we that sure? From an unbiased standpoint, is it going to be Giannis, Paul George, or James Harden? Will he repeat? Is he the NBA MVP favorite after all? Can we all agree that those three have separated themselves from the rest of the pack? Those three are the top three in the NBA this season. So let's start the afternoon by making the case for each of them. Which of those three is going to take home the NBA MVP here in a few months? First, we've got to define what MVP means. The most valuable player. What is worthy of that award? What warrants getting the NBA Most Valuable Player Award. Does it mean the best player? Or does it mean a player that a team couldn't live without? A team that truly relies on that guy to make them special. The guy that they can't succeed without. He's so valuable to that team that they can't do it without him. Maybe even as recent as last Friday, I would have told you without hesitation that the MVP award goes to the guy that a team couldn't live without. But then Saturday night, James Harden doesn't play against the Warriors. They win anyway. So if that's the way you think about the MVP award, as the guy that the team can't succeed without, James Harden's MVP case was significantly damaged by him not playing and his team still beating Golden State on Saturday night. And that makes me think, Maybe that's not all that the MVP award is about. A lot of basketball fans are out there writing Harden off because his team was still able to beat arguably the best team in basketball without him. But should we let one game, his team won one game out of 82 without him, should we let one game discredit everything he has done this season? His string of 32 consecutive games where he scores 30 points or more Snap last night. First time since December 11th 
that he's failed to score 30 points in a game. He had 28 as his team held off Atlanta. One game out of 82 that his team wins without him compared to scoring 30 points or more in 42 of 60 games so far this year, including 32 in a row. Don't let one game discredit everything Harden has accomplished this season. Now, if you're somebody who makes the argument that the MVP award goes to the player that a team couldn't live without, you're probably a Giannis fan. Because the Bucks would not be where they are without Giannis. As good as their role players are, Giannis is the facilitator. He's the leader of that team. He's what makes them go, the glue that holds them together. And in a large part, he is willing the Bucks to the best record in the NBA. The Bucks would not be where they are without Giannis. And if you make that case, that a player deserves the MVP because his team couldn't survive without him, it's pretty easy to make the argument that Giannis is more valuable to his team than Paul George or James Harden is to their respective clubs. If you're a Paul George fan, you can make the case for the MVP award by pointing to the Los Angeles Lakers and what a dumpster fire they are. How they had a chance to get PG-13, and he chose to re-sign with OKC. Never played a game for the Lakers, and yet they booed him his first time coming to the Staples Center because they could have him, and they could be a top three team in the Western Conference right now. But instead, he re-signed with Oklahoma City, and look at the job he's done with Russell Westbrook, getting it done on both ends of the floor. He's arguably the best defender of those three. Hard to pick against Giannis, and even Harden. Yes, Harden does play some defense. It's not all about scoring. I'm going to get into the numbers and break it down a little bit later on. But don't say Harden plays zero defense, because that's such a lazy argument, and it shows that you haven't watched basketball all year. Let's get into the numbers. Let's make the case for each of them. James Harden, 42 games out of 60 so far, where he scored 30 points or more. He's the NBA's leading scorer, averaging 36.3 points a game. He's third in offensive efficiency, and he's shooting 37% from behind the arc. Now, here's where his defense does come into play. Would it surprise you to know that he averages 2.1 steals a game, and that's third in the NBA? Don't tell me he doesn't play defense. Doesn't play defense like the other two, but don't tell me he doesn't play any defense. Paul George. Harden is the NBA's leading scorer. PG-13 is second at 28.7 points a game. Harden is third in the NBA in steals. Paul George tied for first with 2.2, tied with teammate Russell Westbrook. And he is shooting 40% from behind the arc. Everyone wants to talk about Harden and how efficient he is from three. But Paul George is actually shooting at a better clip percentage-wise. And of course Giannis. He's fifth in the NBA in rebounds at 12.7 a game. He's fifth in the NBA in double-doubles this season with 42, and second in overall offensive efficiency. He's averaging a double-double while shooting 58% from the field. Now detractors from Giannis will make the case, well, he's 6'11". James Harden and Paul George are doing this at, I won't say average height, but average height for the NBA. I mean, you can make that argument. It's not a good argument, but you can make it. So before we go to a break, let's put the finishing touches on this 
and let's break these players down by category. Scoring, rebounding, efficiency, defensive ability, who you call on when you need a surefire bucket, and who do you call on when you need a three. Let's break these three players down and see where they fit in each category. As far as scoring, you've got two top five NBA scores out of these three. Hard at number one, averaging eight points a game more than Paul George, who's number two. I like what Paul George does, but you got to give it to Harden. You have to give it to Harden. 42 games out of 60 this year where he's scoring 30 points or more. Scoring, that's Harden's. Total rebounding, there's not a competition here. Let's be honest, there's no competition between these three when it comes to who's the best rebounder. That's Giannis all the way. 13 rebounds a contest. Again, that's fifth in the NBA. Overall efficiency. You've got two top five players in total efficiency. Giannis is second in the NBA. Harden is third. Harden is getting it done by shooting threes. He's making them to his credit. Giannis is doing it because he uses his freakish athletic ability to get to the rack. And he's shooting 58% from the floor, partly because he's 6'11", partly because he takes high percentage shots. But he's playing to his skill strength, and he's doing exactly what he needs to, and he's playing inside of Mike Budenholzer's offense. Rockets coach Mark D'Antoni, he has designed his offense around James Harden. This is a toss-up, but I'm going to give offensive efficiency to Giannis, because Giannis plays inside his coach's system, plays to his coach's strengths, and Harden doesn't. Harden makes his coach conform to his game, which again, I'm not going to knock him for that. If that's working for him, if it's a winning recipe, then do it. But I'm more impressed with how Giannis is able to do it without changing his coach's philosophy. Defensive ability. Paul George leading the NBA in steals. He's a significantly better defender than James Harden. Giannis at 6'11", a great defender in his own right. But this isn't like high school basketball, where you need one tall kid and you can pack the paint. This is the NBA. And you've got multiple guys who can shoot 35% or better from behind the arc on the floor at any given time. I am not knocking Giannis's defensive ability. I believe he's the second best defender out of these three. But I'm going to give the defensive ability to Paul George. He's my lockdown defender. He's the guy that I'm putting on my opponent's best player. If you need a go-to bucket, who are you going to? This can be from anywhere on the floor. You know, it's really tough to say that you wouldn't let James Harden take the last shot if you needed him to. With what he's done this year, it's really tough to say that. Paul George might be that same way. And maybe we don't know how good of a shooter he really can be this season because he's got better help around him in Oklahoma City than James Harden does in Houston. He's got Russell Westbrook around him. He's got guys that can step up and take that big shot. It doesn't always need to be him. And maybe that hurts his MVP candidacy. But I tell you what, Giannis is the one I'm going to when I need a go-to bucket. A 58% shooter from the floor, and I think Will Kane said it best. The guy is simply jaw-dropping. Six foot eleven, and if he ever gets an inkling in his mind, like the hint of an idea that he wants to get to the hoop, you're done. It's over. He's going to get there. 
It's for that reason, his ability to get to the basket and create high percentage shots for himself is why if I need a go-to bucket, Giannis is my pick out of those three. And finally, three-point shooting. And I said Paul George has a better three-point shooting percentage than James Harden does. But James Harden does so at a more efficient clip. And that's so weird to think about. Harden's more efficient, yet his percentage from behind the arc is 3% lower than Paul George. I'm not making this up. You can look it up. James Harden is the guy that I want shooting the key three-pointer I need late in the game. As much as I like Paul George, it's a toss-up, but I'm picking Harden. So to recap, I gave James Harden scoring and three-point shooting. I gave rebounding to Giannis along with offensive efficiency and the guy that I go to when I need a bucket. As a defensive expert, I'm giving that to Paul George. Now, it's not fair to look at that chart and say, we have a clear-cut MVP. Paul George is in the race because he does so much that doesn't show up on the stat sheet. But if his greatest advantage over his two opponents in the MVP race is his defensive ability in a league gearing more toward offense, he might be in some trouble when it comes to winning league MVP. It's going to be a lot of fun down the stretch to see which of these three can separate themselves from the pack. We are overtime, so we owe you our first time out in a big way. When we come back, a couple of high-profile sports personalities in a little bit of hot water this week. We'll break that down for you next here in the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP, online with our app, Tanner Hoops, with you. Thanks for hanging out with me on your Tuesday afternoon. A couple of high-profile sports figures find themselves in hot water. One of them, a radio broadcaster. The other, a football coach. And you can go through examples all throughout sports history and find comments of people saying things that aren't politically correct and finding themselves in hot water for it. Gary Dolphin, the radio voice of the Iowa Hawkeyes football and basketball teams, suspended for the second time this basketball season, and this time it's a year-long suspension. The reason? When Iowa lost to Maryland last week, 66-65 to because of a last-second tip-in shot, Gary Dolphin referred to one of the Maryland players as King Kong. This player happened to be African-American. Now, full disclosure, I've met Gary many times. He's bought me a beer. He's been on this show before. If you think back to week four of the college football season, I had him on when Iowa was getting set to play Wisconsin in football last fall. And he's done a lot more for me than he's ever needed to. And I know him well enough to know that there was nothing with racial intent behind his comment. Does it sound bad? Yes. I get why people are upset by it. But that's not who he is, and that's not what he meant by it. He clarified by saying he was complimenting the player's ability to rise over top of the rest of the pack and be able to just tap the ball into the basket for the winning bucket in the last seconds. I know it sounds bad. I know it does. I know why people are upset. But I don't believe there was anything racially motivated behind what was said. Poor choice of words, yes. Not with racist intent behind it. 
So Gary Dolphin suspended by Iowa Sports Properties, the Learfield affiliate that covers the Hawkeyes for the second time in the last three months. If you remember back to November, Gary was suspended for two games because there was a hot mic during a timeout. He went to a commercial break, or at least he thought, and the mic picked up him criticizing the way the Iowa Hawkeyes recruit. The players that Pitt, who they were playing that night, were able to get compared to the players that Iowa was able to get. He handled it the right way, handled it with grace and class, accepted his suspension, moved on. But it turns out that things are not rosy behind the scenes, that tensions have been rising between Dolphin and head coach Fran McCaffrey, that Dolphin doesn't even go down to the locker room to record the coach's interview anymore. Bob Hansen, former Hawkeye standout, is the broadcast assistant, and he heads down to record the interview. So there's a lot more to this than what was said and what was misinterpreted. They are continuing to have meetings. They have another one set for tomorrow. And so far, the talks are positive. And I may not be the best one to come on here and try to give an unbiased opinion, a report on. Because again, I know him very well. He's been more than good to me. We text often, always there for career advice when I need it. I know it sounds bad, but I hate the fact that a great guy who does a great job at what he does is being suspended because of the political correctness surrounding the culture. And I don't want to get too big in a rant on that. Not yet. That's coming up later in the show. But what about what happened down in Kansas a couple of days ago? at Independence University. Independence Community College was featured in the Netflix series Last Chance U. It's a community college in Independence, Kansas. Very good football program there. One of my best friends just graduated in December. He's heading to Cal to play linebacker. He'll be starting spring ball here in a couple of weeks. And earlier this week, head coach Jason Brown just celebrated his birthday in effect, signed his own resignation at Independence U. There was a player on this team who happened to be from Germany. Coach Brown texted this player, I am your new Hitler. Big no-no, big no-no. The player then posted screenshots of the text on Twitter, and the coach quickly resigned before he could end up being fired. Now, that's pretty bad. That's a terrible thing to say, especially to a college kid. So I wanted to find out more about this coach. Was he the racist that everybody was pointing him out to be on Twitter, vilifying him on social media? Again, one of my best friends played for him, just graduated from there. And from what I gather from him, he never had any kind of racist encounter with this particular coach. And by the way, my friend is African-American. In fact, two of his siblings were born in Eastern Africa before his family immigrated here. And he never had a problem with this coach. In fact, he still likes this coach very much. And by checking social media, multiple players are sticking up for this coach. A lot of them African-American. I'm not telling you what to think, but I want to tell you what this guy's players think. And multiple players of his said that they have never had a racial incident with him. They do say he is the master of tough love. 
but that he always shows he cares and that he's going to land back on his feet. I don't, I don't know him. I can't say how I feel about him. I'm just telling you how people close to the situation feel about him. I just want to give you the facts and let you draw your own conclusions. Regardless what was said, what was texted to that student is not acceptable. And does he deserve to be the head football coach at Independence U anymore? No. So now the question is, will he coach again somewhere else? Urban Meyer still has a job. Despite the wake that he's left two different programs in, the scandals, the rumors, Urban Meyer's still able to find work because he can coach. Because he's successful. And Jason Brown was very successful at Independence. They're coming off a great run. So the question becomes, where do we draw the line? Kareem Hunt is employed again. Robert Kraft still is going to keep his job. This coach made a mistake. I don't know if he's a bad guy at heart. I don't know him. I'm just telling you what I know from people who are close to him. At what point does someone commit an act so heinous that we say, you're not employable here anymore. We're not going to take the PR hit for you. Maybe that's not the question, though. Maybe the real question is, how much can you help us be successful? Because that will determine if we're willing to take the PR hit for you. Will Jason Brown coach again? Should he? I'm somebody who likes to give people second chances. Then again, I wasn't involved in this situation, and I can't pretend to feel how anyone involved does feel right now. What I can guarantee is that if you can help somebody win, if you're good enough at your job, doesn't matter what your past is, there's a future for you. We went long in our last segment, so let's take a break right now. When we come back, we'll talk a little high school sports here in the state of Michigan. This is a fun time of the year with the basketball tournaments tipping off last night. But there's an obvious problem, at least it's obvious to all of us, except those at the center of things. Next in the Sports Panel on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. The Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. We hit the bottom of the hour, and that means it's time for your Sports Center update. The Colorado Rockies have agreed to contract extensions with both manager Bud Black and third baseman Nolan Arenado. Black's deal is for three years after guiding the Rocks to back-to-back playoff appearances. Arenado's deal is for eight years and is worth north of $255 million, making him the highest-paid MLB position player per year. Last night, the Phoenix Suns snapped their league-worst 17-game losing streak as they took down Miami 124-121. Devin Booker scored 20 for the Suns. And finally, the Oakland Raiders have struck a deal to keep the team in Oakland for the 2019 season with a club option for 2020 if their stadium in Vegas is not complete. So congratulations to the Bay Area. You get to keep your 3-13 and 13 football team just enough to see them maybe get rebuilt enough to be watchable as they ship themselves off to Vegas. That is your Sports Center update. This is the Sports Pen. Thanks for tuning in here on ESPN-UP. This is an exciting week for Youpers, especially sports-loving Youpers. The high school boys basketball district tournament tipped off last night. It's the final week of the regular season for the girls 
And this week, Northern Michigan and Michigan Tech continue their rivalry both on the hardwood and on the ice. Basketball Thursday to close out the regular season. And then hockey Friday and Saturday. Friday night in Houghton, Saturday right here. Those games close out the regular season as well. But let's start with high school basketball. And can I start by saying how impressed I am with the level of high school sports up here in the UP? It's a low-populated, confined area up here. And that breeds competitiveness, which breeds parity. And I really, really like that about coming up here and covering the UP. In Iowa, things are done much differently. I was shocked. I was in a little bit of a culture shock to see how high school sports are run up here. And I like it so much more up here in the UP. Iowa high school basketball, you can have a player play JV and varsity on the same night. They get to play a max of six quarters, whether that's four in JV, two on varsity, three and three, or whatever combination. You can play six quarters per night, and you can play in both games. Not the case, I've learned since you come up here to Michigan. Teams down in Iowa will wear the same jerseys on varsity and JV. Not all of them, but some of them will. Some of them will just wear their same uniform after the JV, plop down on the varsity bench. On average, a school in Iowa carries two to three basketball coaches. A head varsity coach and a head JV coach who is the varsity assistant. Once in a while, you'll add the freshman coach as a varsity assistant. There's no specific varsity assistants down there. The varsity assistants are the head coaches for the younger levels, the JV and the freshman. There are no conference championships below the varsity level. There is not a radio station for every school like there is up here. I went to a high school the size of Marquette. Just for reference, this isn't some podunk farming high school that only has about 100 students that I went to. This is a high school that's the same size as Marquette Senior High School here in town. They just do things a lot differently in Iowa. But I love the competitiveness up here. That's been one of my favorite things about getting to come up here and watch high school sports, cover high school sports, here in the great state of Michigan in the Upper Peninsula. There are a few things I miss about Iowa high school sports, though. One of them is quick stats. If you don't know what quick stats is, give it a Google. Give it a Google. Quick stats, Iowa. There's no C in the word quick. It's a state-operated database containing high school sports stats. Coaches have to report their stats. It's mandatory. If they don't, they get fined by the state. Multiple fines and they could lose their job. I know that wouldn't go over well up here because scouting is such a big thing to a lot of these coaches, which is fine, nothing against them. But as media, I miss quick stats so much, made it so much easier. That's one thing I miss about Iowa high school athletics. The other is seeding when it comes to the high school basketball tournament. That's been a big topic for a lot of people lately. Last night, we were tweeting out the brackets on our Twitter page, which again, you can follow at ESPNUP. We were tweeting out the brackets and the results of the first round matchups, updating the brackets on Twitter. And one of our followers responded to us, should be seated, dot, dot, dot. That was in response to the District 66 matchups in boys' action should be seated. And you know what? He's absolutely right. It should be seated. 
I miss that in Iowa. And a lot of states have their own process of how they do it. Iowa, back when I was in high school, they dropped this sense, but they seed you based only on games 5 through 15. Just whoever you happen to be playing in games 5 through 15 on your schedule, that's the record that they look at when determining postseason brackets. But it makes you wonder when you have a setup like they do up here, why the regular season matters at all. If everybody makes the big dance, does it matter if you go 20 and 0, 0 and 20, 10 and 10, or anywhere in between? What does the regular season mean? Just down to the south of us in Indiana, they're having the same problem. This is Indiana high school basketball. There's a lot of people upset that they don't seed their postseason. In Indiana, the Hoosier State, high school basketball there is like football in Texas or hockey in Minnesota. It's life to them, and they're having this problem. I talked to one coach up here about it. He or she will remain anonymous, but he or she said, it's a shame. It's a shame that the high school tournament is not seeded up here in Michigan. Everybody and their mother wants the MHSA basketball tournaments to be seeded. Everyone except the MHSAA themselves. But what if it was seeded? Let's take a look at District 66 for an example on the boys and girls side, since that's the one with most of our area schools, the district that we cover. Let's take a look on the boys side, first of all. If we seeded the six teams in District 66, it would look like this. Nagani would be the number one and would get one of the first round buys at 13 and seven, ending the regular season. Westwood was 11 and nine when they close a regular season. They would get the number two seed. So Nagani and Westwood would get first round buys. Gwynn and Bark River Harris were both seven and 13, closing the regular season. Did not meet in the regular season. They met last night in the postseason. Gwynn won, so by that virtue of a tiebreaker, for example's sake, let's say Gwynn gets a three seed over Bark River. They get the four. Ishpeming at six and 12 is the five seed. Manistique, four and 14 is number six. So that means your first round matchups would have had Manistique at Gwynn last night with the winner getting Westwood. And you would have had Ishpeming at Bark River with the winner getting Nagani. Instead, the top two seeds in Boys District 66 will be playing tomorrow night in a semifinal at Nagani. It's a completely blind draw up here in Michigan. Not even home court goes to the better team. Last night, as it worked out, you had number two at number six, Westwood at Manistique. You had number three at number four with Gwynn at Bark River. And then number one and number five, Nagani and Ishpeming get the first round buys. How does that make sense? Think if Manistique would have won last night, you would have the number one seed, Nagani, traveling nearly two hours to go play the number six seed, Manistique, in Manistique. How about on the girls' side? Westwood would be the top-seeded team at 18-1. and one. Bark River would be number two at 15-3, and three, and then Nagani, the three-seed, at 14-4, and four, even though I think Nagani is better than Bark River. Gwynn would be the four seed at 11 and 8. Then you have Ishpeming 6 and 13. Manistique would be the six seed at 2 and 15. So your first round matchups would have Manistique at Nagani with the winner visiting Bark River Harris. And you would have Ishpeming at Gwynn 
with the winner getting Westwood. The way it worked out, you have arguably the two best teams in that district, although they're the one and three seeds, playing in the first round of the postseason. Nagani and Westwood. Probably the two best teams in that district. And I'm not saying that should be the district final matchup, because there's so much parity up here. Who knows how it's going to happen? Who knows how it's going to work out? By the way, the top three teams are all on one side of the bracket. If we were seeding the teams, the top three teams would be Westwood, Bark River, and Nagani. And those three are all on the same side of the bracket because Michigan goes with a blind draw. The four, five, and six all on the other side. So you're guaranteed someone lower than a three seed will be in the district final. Now, to be honest with you, I want to see the tournament seeded. But before we go to break, let's think about the cause and effect of having a blind draw tournament like we have right now. Michigan has such great parity up here, especially in the UP. I'm so impressed with the parity. Again, I covered high school sports in Iowa for many years before coming up here. Iowa uses a seed system for their tournament, both boys and girls. And a lot of the times, it's no surprise who wins that district, who wins that regional. There's not a lot of drama until you get down to state. That's where you start getting some parity. By the way, the top eight teams in each class go down to the state tournament in Des Moines. They do it a little differently in Iowa in that sense, but the quarterfinals are all played in Des Moines as a state tournament. There's not a lot of parity until you get to that point. You pretty much know who's going to win the district and the regional rounds. Not much of a surprise. And I wonder if that correlates with teams being seeded. I love the parity they have up here in Michigan. I think a lot of you do too. But does that have anything to do with the tournament being seedless? Think about it. You're guaranteed that the 4, 5, or 6 seed in the girls' District 66 bracket will make the district championship. The 1, 2, and 3 are all going to have to knock each other out. Then you have maybe the 1 and the 4, the 3 and the 5, whatever combination it is. Anything can happen in one game. And that lower seed could have the game of their life. They could move on and win the district. Does not seeding the tournament allow for those Cinderella runs that people love to fall in love with? Is that why Michigan doesn't seed their tournament? Because think about it, if you're the sixth seed and you're playing in a seeded format, you have to go on the road all three games and win all three games in the district tournament. You've got to beat the three seed, you've got to beat the one seed, and who knows who you have to beat after that, probably the two. Probably have to beat all three of the top teams on the road. That's probably not going to happen. But you give the four, five, six seeds the chance to get into the district final, then anything can happen in one game. And that's where you get those Cinderella runs that people love. Is that why Michigan doesn't seed their high school tournaments? Is there a negative correlation between seeding and Cinderella runs? Again, I'll let you come to your own conclusion about it. I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm just here to make you think. Coming up, one of the most prominent voices here at ESPN believes it's time to change one of this country's most prominent sports mascots. Plus, we break down what happened in Oxford, Mississippi, when social issues and sports collide. Next in the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. 
Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen, weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to The Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Danner Hoops with you. Almost the end of the workday. Here we go. Final segment. We're on the home stretch. Let's talk about team mascots, nicknames, logos, how some of them could be deemed offensive in this day and age. I think I've mentioned my Iowa upbringing in about every segment so far today, so I'm going to do it once more, give you a little background. I grew up in the northwestern part of the state. You can almost draw a triangle between Sioux Falls, Omaha, and Des Moines, and my hometown will be in the middle of it. In the very northwest part of Iowa, there's a few counties that have a very prominent Dutch heritage. It's a reformed Dutch community. Settlers came over directly from the Netherlands and founded a new church there, and they've kept that community growing for centuries now. Same, it's very similar to what they have in Grand Rapids in the Muskegon area. I have a lot of family from that area, so I'm up there quite a bit. One of the towns has a legit windmill, a legit working Dutch-style windmill, very stereotypical, right smack dab in the center of town when you go in there. That high school's nickname is the Dutchman. Their logo, extremely stereotypical. You've got an angry-looking blonde Dutch boy wearing the little cap with the double-breasted shirt, and he's stomping toward what we presume to be an opponent. He's got these big, overemphasized, exaggerated wooden shoes on. Nobody seems to be too offended by that because that's the heritage up there. I guess maybe there's some people who feel that with the changing of the times, that's not appropriate anymore. In fact, there was a youth football league up there that would not allow any of the youth teams to be called Dutchmen. Instead, they made them pick an animal as a mascot, tigers, lions, wildcats, what have you. There's a town about two hours to the south of where I grew up, and it's very similar to the Dutch community, except it's a Danish community. Their high school nickname is the Danes. Or a Catholic high school, 75 minutes to the west of where I grew up. Their teams are called the Crusaders. Now, I'm not saying anything about the Crusades themselves. I don't want to get into that. But do you think that some people out there have a problem with high school kids bearing the nickname of a group of soldiers that went to war with Muslims? You think somebody in this day and age has a problem with that? Yet all these still exist with very little pushback. They do it a larger scale as well. You don't have to look very far to find a mascot based on an ethnic group. You see it all the time with Indian tribes, Redskins, Seminoles, Braves, Chippewas, Sioux. And people are so much more offended by those. In fact, the Cleveland Indians continue to distance themselves from Chief Wahoo. They're replacing the Chief Wahoo logo with the block letter C. That's what Max Kellerman on ESPN's first take was getting at when he suddenly took a turn. And though you may not agree that some mascot names are offensive, there are people who do. And while there's plenty of those hot-button topics to go over, Max decided to go with a team who's really not that much of a hot-button and suggest they need to change their iconic mascot. 
tell you from my personal experience, anecdotally, when I go to Native American reservations around the country to call fights, I am approached. I've, I've received feathers in honor and letters saying thank you for your stance publicly. This is the way many of us feel. So. The Washington Post, do I believe that's a representative survey of the way Native Americans actually feel about this? No, I do not. But how hard is it for you or anyone to empathize, simply empathize with a group who is defended, even if it is a minority of the group that is offended? And as to the argument, kind of when is enough or when does it end? My friend Brian Kenny, Stephen A., our colleague and, and good friend from ESPN, now on MLB Network, was tweeting about this last night, and someone asked him about, what about the fighting Irish? Brian is Irish-American. His father, Charlie Kenny, the late, great Charlie Kenny, bog farmer from Ireland. That's where his people are from. Walked the beat in Queens as a cop once he got to this country. Was asked about the fighting Irish and the leprechaun logo. And many Irish-Americans are not offended, but many are. And should that also change? You answer the answer that. Is, the answer is Yes, oh unequivocally yes. Pernicious negative stereotypes of marginalized people that offend even some among them should be changed. It's well, not that hard. You had to know I was going to bring this up at some point, didn't you? My listeners know me well enough. Pernicious negative stereotypes. That's what Max Kellerman thinks of the Notre Dame mascot, the fighting Irish, the leprechauns. That irked former Notre Dame head football coach Lou Holtz, a 1988 national champion, to come defend the Fighting Irish mascot. See, I get Max is trying to make everybody feel comfortable, be politically correct. I give him credit, being sensitive to the issues of others, what have you. But he's not informed in what he's saying. Max Kellerman does not understand the history of how Notre Dame's athletic teams came to be known as the Fighting Irish. Because if he did, he would not refer to it as a negative, pernicious stereotype. I'm going to try and run through this quickly because we're running short on time. I want to give you the three major events in American history where Fighting Irish trended. Trending was a thing before Twitter. just didn't happen on social media. And the Fighting Irish moniker trended three times in our American history that led to Notre Dame adopting it for its sports teams. First in the Civil War, a brigade of Irishmen came over from the Emerald Isle. They fought alongside the North. They helped fight for the equality of every man, and they were key in several battles in the Civil War. They proudly bore the name Fighting Irish. And they're a big reason why the North was successful in the Civil War. Fast forward to the early 1900s. Newt Rockney is the head coach at Notre Dame, a fledgling football program that he turns into a national power. They're so good, nobody in the Midwest wants to play them. So they decide to go East. They beat up on Army and on Harvard. That wouldn't be as impressive now, but back then, they were the Alabamas and Clemsons of the world. They were truly the fighting Irish because of their gritty, tough, determined style of football. That was the second time Fighting Irish started trending. And the third time came in 1924, when the Ku Klux Klan was still very much a part of American society. They're still around today, don't get me wrong. But the 1920s was a big era for the KKK, and they were vehemently opposed to groups who didn't agree with them. 
they would discriminate against and murder blacks, Jews, and Catholics. And the KKK in 1924 decided to venture north to South Bend, Indiana, and march on Notre Dame's campus as a protest. Notre Dame was an all-male school in 1924, and the students came out and they went hand-to-hand and fought the Ku Klux Klan. The headlines in the paper said, Fighting Irish Confront the KKK. In none of those three cases was there a negative connotation associated with the Fighting Irish. So I give Max credit, being sensitive to others who might be offended. But if you're offended by the Fighting Irish, you don't know the history of it. You don't know how that came to fruition. And I think that's the same with a lot of other mascots. I'm not saying that every mascot name out there is not offensive. There are a few that need to be changed, let's be honest. But so many of these mascots recognize the proud heritage of certain groups. It's not to discriminate or make fun of. Again, you can't say that's the case with every mascot, but a lot of them just don't have the negative connotations that the PC police wants you to believe that they do. I'm really running short on time, but this is a great transition to what happened in Oxford, Mississippi in the last couple of days. So I'm sorry, Will Kane, if I cut into your show just a little bit, but I want to break this down. Because over the weekend, the Ole Miss basketball team had the approval of their athletic director and their head coach to take a knee for the national anthem. They did so to protest a rally for the Confederate States of America, which was taking place in Oxford at that time. The players wanted to make very clear that they were not disrespecting those overseas fighting for our freedom, but they decided to take a knee for the national anthem because of what was going on across town, just outside their campus walls. I want to be very careful with how I word this because I don't want to insert my own opinion into this, I want to lay both sides of the argument out there so that you can come to your own conclusions about it. I don't believe anyone involved meant any disrespect to the armed forces, our troops, our flag. I don't believe that the majority of anthem protesters feel that way either. I'm not defending or condoning kneeling for the anthem, but do Certain groups get oppressed in ways that a lot of us could never understand. Absolutely they do. I know for a fact they do. And I have no idea what they've gone through. I cannot pretend to put myself in their shoes when it comes to being discriminated against. I'm thankful for that. But I'm not thankful they have to go through it. And that's why I try to be sensitive to what others have gone through and what they've experienced. Are some of these protesters looking for their 15 minutes of fame and they couldn't even tell you what they're protesting about? Absolutely. You better believe it. But I don't think that's the majority of them. I think for the majority of them, a lot of them really feel like they have no other option. And it is a cry for help. On the other side, it's important to recognize that certain things are sacred to some people that may not be sacred to others. People who fought for the country will look at that flag and everything they sacrificed for it, those that they've lost, and they'll look at the flag as a symbol of unity and patriotism. And it hurts a lot of them to have fought for that flag and see it not get treated with the level of respect that they feel it deserves. And that's where 
the divide happens. That's why we're so split on the issue. It's such a polarizing issue. There's not a lukewarm stance you can have on it. The problem is, once this happens, we see each other as the enemy. We become each other's enemy. It's a civil war of sorts. We don't take the battlefield. We don't fight with weapons. But we enter our own modern version, a social version of this civil war. And it's exactly where we could all take a page from the NBA. Can you believe that? The NBA. If the world was run like the NBA, things would be a lot better socially. Would it surprise you to know that the NBA actually mandates every player must stand for the national anthem? The most predominantly African-American professional sports league in the world, the NBA, does not allow players to kneel for the national anthem. Could you imagine if the NFL tried to do that right now? Everyone would lose their ever-loving minds. Why? Because those inside the NBA, the execs, are compassionate and they work toward a common goal. Those in the NBA who feel it's important to stand for the national anthem, they don't look at the kneelers and say that they hate America, that they're ungrateful. And those who are in favor of the right to kneel don't call those who stand for the anthem hateful or bigots. They understand each other, and they've made it clear to each other that they value who they are as a person. They don't know what the other's gone through. But instead of letting the issue divide them, they listen to each other with empathy. I don't believe that the majority of athletes who kneel for the national anthem hate America. Do I wish they'd protest a different way? Yeah, I absolutely do. Because to me personally, the national anthem is a time where we recognize the efforts of those willing to give the ultimate sacrifice to fight for our freedom overseas. And I miss so much when we could all come together in that unifying moment and we could honor our country and our flag. I miss that so much and I hope someday that we can get back to that. I pray every morning and night, I pray to God that he can unify this country again. But that's not going to happen if we keep vilifying each other for not thinking the same way as us. If you feel strongly about the issue one way or another, I'm not asking you not to do so. I'm asking you to open your heart and be sensitive to others as well. Because that's what's happening in the NBA, and look what's happened there. They're required to stand for the national anthem, yet there's no backlash for it. Because the NBA is sensitive to the experiences of each other. We don't know what everyone else has gone through. And we probably never will. We'll never be able to put ourselves in the shoes of somebody from another race. And that's why even if you don't agree with what's going on, be sensitive to their experiences. I am way over time. I gotta get out of here. I appreciate you all tuning in, as always. We're going to be back on tomorrow, 4 Eastern, 3 Central, right here on ESPN-UP. Until then, thanks for listening to the Sports Pen.